episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and as always, we are talking about how things in Montpelier shake out for Wyndham County. On the show today, we have regular contributor, Emily Kornheiser. Hello, Emily. Good morning, Olga. And then, yay! From from the Deerfield Valley and Whitingham, we have Abby Course, who is a member of the Course Farm Dairy. And if you've ever been through Whitingham, it is a gorgeous farm on the top of a gorgeous hill. And uh, we're so glad you could join us today, Abby. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. And for those who are new to the show, we air at 2 p.m. on Friday for WBEW. You might be hearing us now. You can also um, find us on YouTube and Facebook. And the opinions expressed on this show are ours and ours alone and not the radio station. So you've been warned. Um, I would love to jump in, Abby and Emily, and let's just start talking about agriculture and the Vermont brand. Um, you know, I think so many people, when they think of Vermont, they think the beautiful cows and the rolling hills and the lovely ski areas and maple syrup. Um, and Vermont has been really good at building that, that kind of beautiful, all-natural brand. And yet, it feels sometimes, at least for me, someone who's looking from the outside in on farming, that how we tell the story of farming versus how we actually support it for those who are doing the work is not always in alignment. Like maybe we value it as a story more than we do as an actual economic entity, lifestyle, um, and all the things that that farming does. Uh, so let's start there. And, and, and I'm, I'm looking forward to what you say, Abby, because you are a member of the uh, Northeast Organic Farming Association. You're on the board, as well as an Act 250 commissioner, which to me just seems like an interesting intersection. Well, it is. <laughs> um, I think you summed that up so perfectly. It's something that I have, I think that as with everything else, COVID has brought to the fore so many of the things that maybe we've tucked aside, but this moment has sort of brought up very clearly and into sharp relief what we're really dealing with. And I think that farming and agriculture in Vermont is no different. Um, where to start? Yes. Our, from my vantage point, as uh, so we're a certified organic dairy farm, we ship milk to Organic Valley. Um, we have been here since 1868 on unceded Abenaki territory. Um, and unfortunately, we do, I think, tend to capitalize upon the image of Vermont. And we love, like you said, to tell those stories, but we don't support those stories with policy. We support them with rhetoric. And that is, that is half the battle, right? I mean, I was a journalism major. I understand the importance of storytelling and narrative. Um, but I also think we're certainly in an era right now where we need to start thinking really carefully about who, from where are the stories coming? Who is being represented in the stories that are being put forward? Are we hearing from the same people over and over? And I think agriculture in Vermont is exactly the same as anything else. You know, in the legislature, you're dealing with a citizen legislature. I have a lot of grace for that. You know, like it's not like our legislators are raking the big bucks doing what they're doing and they're trying to balance a ton of things all at once, right? And the average person is three to four generations removed from the farm. You know, it's not like it used to be where in Whitingham there are 12 dairy farms. There are now two, three, two and a half. Um, but a big difference, not 12. <laughs> a, big, a big difference. And so like, you know, we, we talk about this a lot, right? And this is in our public discourse and our rhetoric, like 
we are not connected to our food sources, to the people who are growing our food, to the stories that come literally from the ground. Pardon, I can't help myself. It was right there. So I think that that's really what we're dealing with. And because Vermont has capitalized upon that image, we're all really invested in it as a story or as an image, but there's a really big cognitive dissonance between being invested in the story of that and being invested in the people who are making that happen. And I think that's where you're really seeing the breakdown between the rhetoric and the policy. Does that help? Explain? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Um, I felt like this was particularly relevant because we have the two highest profile um, folks who are running for state office on the Democratic ticket right now, both are really bringing the farming story with them to the political landscape. And so it's interesting to see how Vermonters across the political spectrum um, identify with farming or not farming or rural lifestyle or not rural lifestyle. And yet when I talk to friends who are farming, it's really the sort of question of, do I invest in the painted picket fence so that my Instagram pictures can look better so that more people will come to my farm? Or do I invest in like the ugly infrastructure behind the scenes or in my soil that will not, um, that won't help my advertising and my brand image, but will actually help like the health of my livestock. And so when I see those conversations try to play out in the legislature, we don't, we don't get anywhere. We stay, we sort of feel really invested in the story. And then some folks say, we can't put any more burden on farmers, so we can't do anything. And I don't like, there, I, there's a path between those things. One would hope. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there has to be a path between those things. And it's also another one of those places where we see a big generational divide, you know, and we yes. see it across Vermont, right? So we have, you know, young farmers, access to land, and we have um, some older farmers who are sitting on family land. And there aren't that many people that I know, Abby, like you, who are really walking that like liminal space between like organic and non-organic farming, between family farm and like, what does it mean to, you know, be on Abenaki land? Like all of those, all of those conversations all get so tangled up and they're so complicated for people who don't have access, like direct access to farmers. Um, I, I, yeah. Their way through. I totally agree. I think, I think there's a few things that happen. Unfortunately, so a lot of what we're seeing in agriculture in Vermont is a direct result largely of federal policy, right? Vermont is a dairy state. It's more reliant on dairy as a commodity than any other state in the United States actually, which is I think a little known fact. Not more reliant on a commodity than any other state, but on dairy as the commodity. So dairy brings in, for example, $3 million into the local economy cash every day, right? So, but within that too, we have the fact that this, the, the number of dairy farmers, because I feel like the numbers I can only speak to intelligi intelligibly with dairy and then we can branch off into other agriculture. Um, so the number of cows in Vermont is static, but the number of farms is dropping. That isn't a result of Vermont. That is a result of federal Nixonian, Butzian policy 40 years ago of get big or get out. And so as the commodity markets have shifted, that's why you're seeing, you know, we don't incentivize in our commodity marketplace quality, we incentivize quantity. And so when you're incentivizing quantity, not to say that it's super simple, I think farming is not simple, but there is a simpler equation that goes into producing a lot of milk than producing the highest quality milk that you can. But like those issues aren't something, or they're very difficult issues for Vermont to solve, right? I mean, Senator Leahy is an amazing advocate for Vermont's agricultural 
economy and its farmers in very real, tangible ways. But, you know, he's up against, there's only so much you can do. So I think coming back to the Vermont brand, what you have to start to do is start to think about how Vermont can solve some of these problems within its own state. And I think of it, I study, I was in Holland for a very short period of time in high school. And I sort of think about Holland a lot as, as contrasted to Vermont because of its size and its possibility for efficiency. And so for example, like you said, if we decided we really wanna invest in a local resilient regionalized food system, because I think that it would need to be regional to really be successful, then we would think about where we put slaughterhouses, where we put food hubs, how we made it so that the distribution chains for your local farmers became something that they weren't each individually having to reinvent the wheel. So that as you say, instead of painting the picket fence to get the Instagram followers, or instead of spending every Saturday at the farmer's market, because people like the farmer's market, they would have a chance to actually be able to do what it is that we need them to do, which is produce the most nutrient dense nourishing food for our citizens. So like in our case with Organic Valley, it's a cooperative. What the cooperative model allows is I don't have to market my farm. I don't have to figure out the logistics of my farm. You know, the, the board of Organic Valley is all farmers. The committees are all farmers. It's completely controlled by farmers. It's vertically integrated that way. And we tap in to national distribution chains. And we could essentially, I think, start to do some of that in Vermont but we would have to decide that that's what we want to do. We would have to talk about slaughterhouses, for example, which let's be honest, people don't want to talk about that. They're <laughs> terrified of blood and guts and death mm -hmm. um, and dirt and mud and manure and poop and all these things, right? We don't. Yeah. Before we jump into slaughterhouses and food hubs, I want to sort of go back to that yes, go back. quality. Sorry because I don't want to lose that thread. It's really important because it's part of a much broader theme that we talk about with Vermont, which is we are very small. We are very hilly. <laughs> and so in a race to the bottom, which is what a quantity race is, whether that is economic incentives to recruit factories, what, whatever that is, we are mm -hmm. never going to win in a race to the bottom, even if we decide that's what we want to do. Correct. And so we have to, to be focused on quality because we're never going to win on quantity. We have no chances there. And Great. so in, if we are investing in quality, then like, like you said, that's a decision we have to make. And in some ways that is a place where the Vermont brand is helpful because it can sort of protect mm -hmm. the quality um, so that we aren't, so that we can compete with other people who are focused on quality. So when I think about, you know, even attaching the Vermont brand to, um, you know, it's very well attached to cheeses. We are thinking about attaching it to cannabis. It's attached to beer. There's a sort of wide variety of places it's getting attached, but it very rarely goes down the supply chain enough to what is considered commodities, right? There's a few bread makers who are really focused on Vermont grains and sort of in their ingredient list, but you can buy, you know, a bunch of Vermont products that are not made with Vermont grown goods. So when we're sort of in the quantity versus quality space, we're often really focused on the value added products rather than the commodity Good point. products. And so we're really like losing the opportunity for folks like you who are like working the, like, on the ground is sort of the terrible, you know, terrible line I was about to use. So works. <laughs> um, it does work. And then um, the other thread that I think is really important to name is that as we've tried to do the regional, like as you're saying the regional hub, as we've moved towards sort of the farmer's market environment, um, one thing that has always been like immediately conscious for me as someone who could never farm in a million years is that I don't have the ability to exist in the kind of solitude that a farmer needs to exist in, right? Like the just like day in, day out labor solitude that farming 
often is for people. And the personality that can do that, I think is a personality that really struggles for the most part at a farmer's market. And the farms, I know that the farms that do the best at the farmer's market are the farmers who can walk both of those lines. That is a rare skill and not one that is necessarily like gonna be the person who grows the best products. It's the person who can like somehow turn on and off different parts of their personality that generally are not aligned. 100%. You'll, that is why you will not even see me at a farmer's market <laughs> because I am so introverted that, yeah. Um, so, and all that to say, and like not to lose the train of thought, it's all to say that we, when we make policy decisions by accident, <laughs> what we've essentially done, right? We had some national policy and we didn't make any other policy decisions. So when we make policy decisions by default or by accident, we don't have the opportunity to build on what is and like what are, right? And so that quality thing that like, what are, who are farmers and like, what do they actually need? Um, so many interesting things to, to say. So yes, I think about it a lot. And I also think there's a, I think that there's some fatigue, particularly I would guess, no, I am going to say it in the democratic progressive space about the poor farmer. You know, I think, um, and in Vermont, we've seen a really unfortunate uh, confluence of events with what's happened with the TMDL with Lake Champlain and the issues of the- What's a TMDL for our listener? Uh, I knew you were gonna ask that. Total right. daily load. Total yeah. nitrogen yeah. daily load? Is that the end? Nitrogen? Something, yes. It's something to do with the phosphorus in Lake Champlain. That, you know, 40% of, or however it broke down was the dairy farmers that are, for the record, I just feel I have to say this, around Lake Champlain, there are a lot, this is the first thing I would like to say, there are a lot of dairy farmers in this state who are not anywhere near Lake Champlain. <laughs> and in my opinion, what you're talking about with with where we've fallen down on policy or made policy by mistake is partially due to the fact that we, for one thing, forget that Vermont exists below Route 4. That's a big deal. Because Wyndham County, for example, I believe, I could be wrong, but my mother said this the other day and I trust her. Um, Wyndham County has some of the most diverse agriculture in the state because like you talked about, you're dealing with the realities of topography, right? And so where am I trying to go with this? So I think when we're talking about policymaking and if we were really interested in supporting the people that everybody talks about wanting to support, because that's the thing that drives me nuts is you hear everywhere I love my, I love the small farmer. I love my vegetable farmer. I love my CSA. I love my dairy farmer. I love my small dairy, you know, my organic dairy, whatever. And I am one of those people who's very unwilling. There are a few, just a bit over 600 dairy farms left in Vermont. So I'm not willing to throw stones at this point. We need them all, frankly, in terms of our economy. We can talk more about like what that means, but like at the moment, the throwing under the bus of all the dairy farmers is, is, has got to stop because our entire agricultural economy relies on those dairy farmers. The agricultural railroad of Vermont was built on dairy. So your feed stores, your equipment shops, all of the things that keep your CSAs and your farmers markets going that everybody claims to love is reliant on the economic bulk of the dairy farmers, of which there are only 620 left. So that's one. Two, we keep, again, the challenges of a citizen legislature, right? The challenges of people struggling in every sector, right? Like it is no longer that like, it's just farmers. I mean, everybody, certainly from my vantage point in Whitingham, it's not like people are like, yeah, life is great. I'm thriving. That's 
not a thing that we hear very often, right? So I think that that factors into the sensitivity around some of the farmers' issues too, is like, well, why should they get more money or why should they get more support? Like, I can't make it either. And I can't afford to buy that high quality organic food or I can't afford to get to the farmer's market. So you're dealing with issues of food access too. And I wanna, I wanna make sure that Let's that put is- put a pin in that and go back to yeah, that. I wanna put a pin in that, but I also wanna make sure I said it because I'm not insensitive to the realities on the ground again of the people who have to buy the food. So why aren't we asking questions of the farms that we claim to want to perpetuate and listening to what they say, we're dealing with this in our racial equity space too, right? If you want the communities that you're talking about to succeed, you have to one, be willing to ask them the question, two, be willing to listen to what they say, and three, be willing to put aside your ego and do what they tell you they need. Because the reality is I am as a decently radical environmentalist type, right? But at the end of the day, farmers don't, cannot think in absolutes. And the problem that we run into in policy is we wanna say, well, this is my, this is my line, this is my absolute. And if you can't meet me here, farmer, well then I'm not gonna talk to you anymore and we're just gonna drop this. Well, if, if we understood as, <clears throat> as Vermonters, what farming really is, what, uh, I'm gonna get in so much trouble for saying this, but what good farming is, is the constant balancing of environment and economy, mm -hmm. right? Like if the environment doesn't succeed, I don't, and vice versa. And you so know I, that better than almost anyone else in Vermont. I literally know that better than almost anybody else in Vermont. And yet, when I sit at the table with VNRC, with CLF, with the Nature Conservancy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all of these organizations that we trust so deeply that we literally allow to write our environmental legislation in committee, they will say to me, well, I think we need to bring in more experts. <laughs> I, and Chuck Ross, bless his heart, told me once that he's like, well, you're invested. So they don't take you seriously because you're an invested party. <laughs> and I was like, well, then I think we need to examine that again, just like we're doing with the racial equity space. Who better to tell you what the issues are and how we need support than the communities that are dealing with it. And I think partially what's happened is because of the economic driver of the big dairy farms, because they're dealing with economies of scale, so they have efficiencies within their operations that can allow them to have a person who can go to the legislature, for example. What you're dealing with with small farmers is that you have to you have to make the space, you have to, you have to be willing to talk to them on their terms because they are literally working 15 hours a day mm -hmm. to try to compete with the economies of scale over which they really don't have much control, right? And so you hear, I hear, well, we've asked, but nobody comes, nobody comes to Montpelier. We can't get them to come here. We can't get them to talk to us. Oh, I can't, I can't get a hold of, well, you know, consider what their life is like. It's the same thing with your single mother who needs childcare. It's the same thing with your um, grocery store, with anybody. And we talk about that so, I talk about that so much. Yes. We talk about that so much on the happy hour. It's, mm -hmm. there are going to be more tenants than landlords at, at, in your community. There are more landlords at the table. There are going to be more workers than employers in your community, but there are more employers at the table. And so it goes on and on and on. And unless legislators are willing and able 
and able is real because it's that's, just, no, that's very like, real. Like mm-hmm. I don't have any time, right? Like totally. I have to work too. Um, unless we're we have figured out a way to really be listening to the communities of folks who are getting the work done, we're not going to be developing policy that works. And that's what's important at the end of the day. So we can put in the regulatory regimes that um, are drafted without farmer input. But Vermont doesn't even have the capacity to regulate something that's not positively regulated. Like we only have the capacity to regulate through consent. And so to regulate well through consent. If we are regulating by, you know, punishment and sort of negative incentives, there's no way to have equal or even justice because we don't have enough inspectors. We don't have enough systems in place. We don't have enough systems in place to even help people understand what the regulations are. Yes. And so unless we're developed, like unless we're really finding equal goals and with communities and saying like what regulatory mechanisms will fit in with how you do your work and meet your needs so that we can have shared goals for say, you know, farmers are more invested in making sure that climate change and the quality of our soils than anyone else, right? Mm -hmm. And so unless we're like really co-developing that policy, it's not gonna work. I could not agree more. I, we, we're just about ready to to go to break to hear from some of our underwriters, but I wanna just, sort of name something that we've kind of talked about, but I want to really make sure it's clear, at least something that I see. Um, You know, I think in Vermont, quite often we love farming. We love the postcard of farming. Like what Emily said, you know, does a farmer invest in what makes their Instagram feed look good or do they invest in the soil? Or, and Abby, you touched on it when you're like, well, no one wants to talk about slaughterhouses because they're yucky. And I think in our culture, and I, I don't think this is just Vermont. I think this is a national thing. We love the image of the beautiful bucolic farm, but we have a lot of negative stereotypes towards farmers, mm-hmm. you know, that they're not educated or, you know, anyone can farm. It's easy. So why, why would this be like an economic driver? You know, people aren't making these connections. And, and I think that's, that's such an interesting disconnect. And I think it gets a little bit to the root of why we have so many great stories, but so often farmers aren't at the table in, in a way that could be really useful to them. Um, And, and I think, we need to dig a little deeper ourselves into those stereotypes we have around farmers um, of, of kind of, you know, dumb hicks. I think a lot of people actually see farmers as um, while they still love the picture of farming. Totally. Um, And I don't, I know we're about to go, but I came to a conclusion last year, I think for the first time I had sort of like distilled this down and I was thinking about how many things in a day. Oh, I was at the organic dairy producers conference. And I was thinking, I was, I was taking in the speakers, right. And the content that we were talking about. And then I was like, Oh my God. And I was just thinking about, we went from talking about economic market trends of the organic marketplace and percentages and how the market, the commodities market work and all these things. So you're dealing with, right, to a presentation about mastitis and the details of like somatic cell count and bacteria and how you need to do, you know, so straight up biological science to cropping information, different types of grasses, how they grow, what they need, how you deal with drought. I mean, in one day, the amount of disciplines that I have to, that farmers have to cross mm-hmm. to just get through a day is kind of bananas. I mean, it literally is that in order to be a master of farming, you have to be a jack of all trades. Yeah. You cannot, there is no way to farm without thinking in a very intersectional and interdisciplinary way. And the thing that you're constantly doing, like I was talking about earlier with absolutes is, you're always having to balance. You can never have the ideal. 
because you always have to balance between your herd health, your land health, your machine costs, your labor costs, et cetera, et cetera. And so. And Abby. Yes. Anyone else in the entire Vermont system could understand that it should be a legislator. Oh, well, Mm -hmm. right. (laughs) That. And with that, we go to break. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> or to just put it one more way, in case anyone's still not getting this concept, um, I remember marveling at my grandfather, who was a dairy farmer over the line in Heath, Mass. And he was a farmer, a carpenter, a mechanic, a soil science expert, a veterinarian, all at the same time. Those were all the different skill sets that that he needed. And you're listening to me, and I got to tell you, I am one of the least educated farmers I know. <laughs> I am terrible at mechanics. I'm terrible at carpentry. I make my husband do it because he's a builder. So yeah, there's, yes. In order to have a viable farm business, the number of, uh, balls you have to juggle are immense and be an entrepreneur at the same time yes <laughs> okay with that the montpelier happy hour has to go to break here on wvew 107.7 lp brattleboro your community radio station emily kornheiser and abby course and i to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7. Did I kind of say that already? I might have. Anyway, if you are just joining us, I am your host, Olga Peters, and I am talking with regular contributor, Representative Emily Kornheiser, as well as Abby Course, who is a member of the Course Farm Dairy and also a member of the NOFA Vermont Board and is an Act 250 commissioner and one of the only dairy farmers to be awarded Vermont Business Magazine's Rising Star Award. The only dairy farmer, I think. So far. The only dairy farmer, which is actually a celebration and kind of not a celebration at the same time. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So, Abby, um, with all your work on all these different boards, what is it for you to represent um, the farmers, especially of Wyndham County? Because we have, luckily, especially in um, the eastern part of the county, we do have a lot of new farmers, rel- yes. relative new farmers. What is it like representing them and trying to bring their voice to the table? Well, it's... so. So I come from as I said before, when we were on break, the most privileged sect of farmers in Vermont, I feel, right? I stand to take over an existing farm, which certainly has challenges, multi-generational family dynamics are no small thing, let me tell you what. (laughs) And they cost, I mean, yeah, anyway, that's the story of another day. They're not nothing, okay? Um, And they do cost a lot of money. I think that's another thing we don't talk enough about. It's not like people are just like, here's the business and you don't, yeah. So, but like we, we own our land again, like I said earlier, unceded Abenaki territory. So that concept, I'm not on board with the whole land ownership concept. Concept. I think we could do a lot with that. And we are a conserved farm through VLT. So that was our way of sort of VLT. Vermont Land Trust, ensuring the protection of our lands moving forward for future generations. So, um, but like, I can be at the table if I'm invited, right? My parents believe in civic service. It's, um, they live very sparsely. That's something that was really um, ingrained in me was service and things like that. And we have a farm model, again, because of the cooperative model of Organic Valley, where we're not trying to go seven ways to Sunday to support our, you know, we can focus on making high quality milk and building soil health. Um, 
So I have the ability to show up to the table. Most of the farmers of my, I'm 37. So most of the farmers, my age, younger, and a little bit older are, a lot of them are first generation farmers or beginning farmers. And the reality is, is, is again, because of the, the way that we approach agriculture, those farmers are generally speaking, being expected to reinvent the wheel with every single small farm that's opened, right? So the ability to show up at the table and tell their stories is not something that they ha literally have the time for. Um, and so I just carry them with me always, anytime I come. And a lot of the times I'm the only organic farmer at the table um, in, the, in the dairy world. Although I will say Anson and Allison Eastman have been amazing about that. And they have really done an incredible job of bringing me in and some other organic dairy farmers particularly. And I really, I wanna pause and commend an aspect of our policy world that has, I think, our listeners might not know who Anson Tebbets yeah. is. Anson Tebbets is our Secretary of Agriculture. Allison Eastman is our Deputy Secretary of Agriculture. They've both been to our farm, Allison, multiple times. That's huge. You know, Wyndham mm -hmm. County does not see state <laughs> officials. Whitingham definitely doesn't see state officials unless we're in trouble. I was just about it to say happens. that. Unless they want money or we're in trouble. Exactly. <laughs> so, so, um, but so I'm carrying I'm carrying Ashlyn from Reebok with me. I'm carrying Caitlin from Wild Carrot with me. I'm gonna forget the other name. I'm carrying Lilac Ridge with me. I'm carrying Franklin Farm and Marianne. You know, I have all those people in my head and in my heart when I'm trying to advocate for better policy for farmers in Vermont. But the reality is, is too, is I'm carrying the older generations also, because mm -hmm. I think, unfortunately, what's transpired in the last few years is this demonization of older school, maybe methods of farming, right, or certain methods of farming, and they're, they tend to come, again, I'm speaking very generally, mm -hmm. not a blanket statement, you know, or, but generally speaking, those methods tend to be employed by your older generations of farmers. There's a lot in that, right? That is a result of land grant universities and chemical companies. And there's, there's all kinds of stuff tied up in the reality of what those older generations of farmers are carrying as well. And just demonizing them for not magically doing what we think that they should be doing really is, I do believe unfair and misses the point. So can I just like add something very practical for our listeners who might not yeah. know? So for one very sort of specific example that I'm familiar with from my like very outs, I'm not fourth generation removed from a farm. No one in my family has ever farmed. Um, <laughs> and so, and like, there's actually like very specific, like ethnic cleansing reasons for that. But like, that's, that's, a whole, that's, yeah, a whole that's like my people were not allowed to own land. So, I was going to say we should. That's real and an issue yeah. in Vermont too. So we yeah. should talk about that. I, that's a whole other story. But what I want to say is that, you know, to convert to say organic dairy, the process to do that means that you need, from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is Money. that you need to be willing to pay for organic products and make your organic investment for a long time before you actually get to get the organic prices yes. for your crop. The, the so other transition is expensive in addition to having to like learn new skills and like create new habits and like take like the time out of like we all know how hard change is even in the smallest of ways so like in order to get enough out of yourself and your like day-to-day -day crisis to like make a plan well and I think thank you for saying that because I think that that is what you're yeah how easy would it be for you to change where you live and change your job and change everything about your day-to-day -day existence. And, but we do put that on farmers a lot. We say, oh, well, this is important. And so we need to just- Switch to organic or like become a goat farmer. Or like Right, and it, it, is not, it is not that simple. For example, in organic dairy, there are no organic dairy milk contracts right now. There just aren't. That market is saturated at the moment because, again, of the slow degradation of the USDA organic 
uh, program with the origin of livestock loop, they've created some loopholes that have made it possible for these huge dairies in Wisconsin and other places where they have this massive land base to loophole the system. And so it's like deeply impacted the ability of our small Vermont dairies to mm -hmm. even if there are a lot of them that would switch to organic and they literally cannot. So because like you said, you have to have the market guarantee that you're going to get that price point at the end because it is so expensive to transition. So I don't, I want to make, I think this is a really important other place to name that this is a place where the Vermont brand actually does bring value in protecting us from the national landscape. Because yeah. if a national label becomes um, degraded, degraded or yeah. corrupted, like organic has, then the Vermont organic brand ha can have the opportunity to attract a higher value or higher price. But yes. I think that comes, that same sort of Vermont brand also creates an incredible cost for farmers, especially new farmers coming in. So if mm -hmm. we look at how much the Vermont trademark or the Vermont brand means that people consider this a safe, wholesome place to live in a time of crisis, and we look at how many folks are moving here, sight unseen, buying huge tracts of land and falling down farmhouses for cash right now in Wyndham County. Welcome to the gentrification of Vermont! <laughs> right? What does that mean for a farmer? Right. Oh. Yeah, and before you, you answer that, Abby, I also want to just add that when it comes to change and starting new businesses and transitioning or learning new skills for farmers, I think a lot of people don't understand the time factors for farmers are so different than so many other industries and how much labor has to go into something before you get a result. You know, if you're transitioning your crop from corn to, I don't know, hemp, there's a whole growing season in there. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole transitioning of that field and that takes time and that takes labor before you're even getting a result. And I think so many businesses don't work that way that people don't understand that time to labor to result kind of equation. Right. You have to invest. I mean, we have conversations. We were spending, you know, spent a morning the other day with our apprentice. Um, Cause we, uh, my dad was the first certified master grazer in Vermont through the dairy grazing apprenticeship program, which is so the only cool. federally accredited um, apprenticeship program in farming in the country. Mm -hmm. It's a little bright spot. I do truly believe, sorry, I know this isn't the point, but it's a systems approach, which in terms of the overall nut of what we're talking about, I think is really sort of what we're dealing with, right? We need to stop, um, in general, I think <laughs> our culture needs to step away from the binary, right? Mm -hmm. It isn't about organic or conventional or whatever else you want to break it down to we need to start looking at the systems that create the results that we want to see and so if the results that we want to see are clean air and clean water and nutrient dense food and accessible food how do we put in place policies that make those things happen and that is not for example saying in a legislative committee well if they're making money, I don't want to, during COVID, as these farmers have pivoted their entire business models, have worked 20 hours a day to literally feed Vermont's people, right? They've put in farm stores, they have put, they have done entire websites, they have done delivery, like all for like because they believe in their being that feeding people is some, it, like they're called to do that. Mm -hmm. And so they pivoted and there was literally a legislator, I believe that said, well, if they're making money in the relief packages, I'm not gonna, I don't wanna give them money. They don't need money. <laughs> Which I understand again, like on its face, mm -hmm. that makes sense, right? If you're making money, but but the thing again, that we're not- wait, I wanna like, before you, yeah, I sorry, to, I got off again. I want to put a point on that because I think when we 
talk about policy and systems, we look at what's right in front of us instead of, like you said, what are our long-term goals? Yes. And so if our long-term yeah. goals are a vibrant Vermont where people are, you know, healthy, and nourished, healthy. and whatever, and like farms are clearly an essential part of that. And instead we put our very limited billion dollars in COVID investments in the tent industry and ski mountains, what story are we telling to the other, like one, what story are we telling about where our values are? Mm -hmm. But two, we're investing in just what's right in front of us instead of what the long-term health of our communities require. Right. And, and I think, and like, sorry to the tent industry, but like, it's just for me an example of everything that's like the tourism Vermont trademark brand and not the long-term health of Vermonters. Well, it's, it's oh. again, it's investing in the postcard and not the people. Well, and even further, it's, you're not investing in the postcard. If we could really back out, the postcard is my farm, mm -hmm. right? The postcard doesn't exist without a farm like ours because we're at 2000 feet. So we're in headwater territory, which is something I should not say on a recorded thing, but I'm going to, here we go. Don't come for me, a and um, <laughs> Clean water right? Climate resilience, flood resilience, all these things start in these hill farms. Grazing systems, for example, your, and your little farms that are doing diversified livestock and with some veggies and things like that. Those farms are performing a function that literally creates the environment that we claim we want to see in Vermont and that people, that that tent industry and those ski mountains are cap literally capitalizing upon. So if at some point you aren't investing in the people who are maintaining that pastoral idyllic image, at some point you're not going to have it anymore. Mm -hmm. And that is where I think, like Emily said, we're looking at what's right in front of us as opposed to saying, well, I drove past this farm the other day. Well, I was like, I really was like, wow, that's beautiful. Okay, so let's pause there. What made that place beautiful? What went into making that place beautiful? And how do we invest in that? Because unfortunately, right now, the commodity markets and the food markets don't compensate. And I don't think it's fair to ask people to have them compensate for all of the services that a farm like this provides for, right? Because that would make- Like you said, we can't, the- the food that you grow for you to fully cover your costs is not food that's affordable to the vast majority of Vermonters. Exactly. So it's more that as a state, um, our citizenry and our, and therefore our legislators have to decide we believe in this vision of the future of Vermont. This is what we want to see. And then you have to backtrack from that and you have to ask the people who are already putting that vision in place, who are literally doing the work, what it is that makes them able to do that work. And that's where you start, I think. So, you know, it's almost like, I'm going to get in so much trouble for this. I love it when you say that. In our dairy, like in our dairy relief package, for example, right? The biggest farms, because they had the biggest losses, which is true, they mm -hmm. did get the most, qualify for the most money mm -hmm. because they're operating in an economy of scale. They also have the greatest, with, along with our other businesses, I assume they also have the greatest access to other revenue sources, like other sources. Correct. Of a bank is far more likely yeah. to lend to a balance sheet of a bigger farm with a, it's, yes, like with any other business. And I, and again, like, I don't want to 
just make this about farms. I think this is about small business in general. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Vermont has an opportunity. We used to have small business. We used to believe in villages and communities and small businesses and small farms. And it was possible for those to exist. Mm-hmm. And as time has gone on, and I think economic factors have come into it again from outside, right? Our marketplaces from outside. Cost of healthcare, for instance. Cost of, exactly. We have not taken a step back and said, if this is what we believe in, if we don't only want big business here, what would it take as a state to make sure, to ensure that these small businesses can compete with the big business that's trying to come in. So what I, as someone who keeps on trying to have those conversations, one thing <laughs> I keep on coming up against though, Abby. I'm so that, sorry. No, 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 no. It's, it's that people are, we are all existing on like a hand to mouth crisis yeah. all the time. Ooh. So when you ask a small business owner or perhaps a far, small farmer, what they need to succeed, they're thinking about what they need right in front of them, not what they need long-term. And so we wind up with these small business bailout packages that are just handing cash out rather than saying like, what infrastructure support do you need so that in two years you'll be stable? Mm -hmm. Because no one can see far enough in front of them to ask that question. I could not... Yeah. I could not agree more. I feel like I have said so many, screamed so many times in meetings over the last two years, like, where's the vision? <laughs> who's, who's talking about what this looks like two years out? Because what you're doing right now, you're literally throwing spaghetti money at the wall. Yes. And those are my tax dollars. <laughs> so, so instead... I mean, frankly, a lot of it's like New Yorkers and Californians tax dollars, but yes. That's fair. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other conversation. It is. It's, and I think something we should talk about more in Vermont, because I think we all like, yeah, but yeah. that's I, a whole other conversation. I totally agree, because we have, my husband is a builder. He builds for mostly second homeowners. I I literally rely on them for oh, my life. I don't even, I don't even mean that. I mean, just like most of our money comes from federal funds and most federal funds are not from Vermont. Yes. That's all I mean. But yes. That, that's true. But there is also some other stuff in there that's pretty interesting too, in terms of how, how Vermonters like to approach certain things, mm-hmm. you know, where there's maybe some more to the story than mm-hmm. we're considering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess like the, the, the nut of something that I've, thought about a lot is, for example, in Vermont, the fact that I, every day, choose between stewarding the land that my family has stewarded for 150 plus years in ways that this state claims it wants land stewarded, right, and my children's education. Every day, Mm -hmm. I have to confront the reality that in being here, I have sacrificed my children's opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we talk about those intersections enough. And those are the intersections where I think you start to pull together a a cohort of people so that it's not just about farmers, right? It's about families. Mm -hmm. Because I believe that what Vermont needs is families who want to come here and want to create a village and want to create community and put their kids in the schools Mm -hmm. but towns just be limited to folks who either are willing to make the sacrifices you're willing to make or have seven generations of wealth Mm -hmm. behind them whether that's or you know dollar wealth exactly and what do we, what is the policy that we need to put in place to enable a lot more people to access real opportunity that way? Well, we could start by taking seriously our pupil waiting study, but that's that a conversation a- for another day. We actually, we've we, had that conversation a few times and we will. I bet you have. I bet yeah. you have. Yeah. Um, I, but I'm, I, I went through that school system that they're talking about, okay? And I managed to succeed in that school system. And so did my husband. We graduated valedictorian three years apart. We both had, I know, we both had like full tuition scholarships, him to UVM, me to St. Mike's. 
but but again that's the thing that I that I have you been together since high school no I mean no (laughs) (laughs) no ours is a complicated love story but um we knew each other in high school but we were not together in high school um we on paper right my husband is a builder he's built up a multi-million dollar business in Wilmington, which is no small feat, right? Like it is hard to do. So I am stewarding this hundred, you know, people love the story of this farm, 150 year old farm. Oh my God, that's amazing. History, but we are sacrificing to, to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. We, we are losing opportunity and our kids are losing opportunity and we are struggling because of what the realities are to make that happen here and those are the things we used to build towns and villages and communities around farms Mm -hmm. around churches around schools but we've hollowed out our little schools right we don't believe in little schools anymore so this is the natural consequence of that and I think that those are the things that we need to start thinking about. What does healthcare look like in this state? What does education look like in this state? And start thinking about those things as, you know, I always get this, like, anytime I start to do this, I've had other legislators be like, well, I want to hear about your experience as a farmer. And I'm like, well, I'm telling you my experience as a farmer. This is my experience as a farmer. I am a mother also. I am a partner right? I am, you know, I'm a wife. I, farming, just like anybody else, that is not the only thing that makes up my existence here. And so I think sometimes we want to focus just on the farming part of it, but that's not necessarily the point. I think we need to think about the systems that Vermont can invest in that, um, Susanna Davis said it yesterday on Vermont Land Trust's uh, Justice and Equity on the Land keynote. She said, systemic issues need systemic solutions. Mm -hmm. And I really think that that's where we're at, right? So it's not just, it's not just putting the farmers over in a corner and saying, how do we save the farmers? It's how do we create thriving, flourishing communities here of which farmers are a part. An essential part. An essential part. And I think that's the other thing is it's like, you know, hazard pay didn't include farm workers. Mm -hmm. I have, there are no childcare hubs here. Mm -hmm. I have had zero support from my school, from my legislators, no offense, from, you're not my legislator, so I can say that from, (laughs) I mean, they've, they've taken my calls. But, you know, like there's no hazard pay for me. There's been, there was dairy relief, but again, that's, that's for the business that I am an employee of. Mm-hmm. So me as a mother, as an essential worker, as a farmer during this time of COVID, I have received zero support from this state. And I can tell you, I'm sure there are lots of other people who are in that boat, but it feels terrible for any of us who are in that boat and particularly I think when you're dealing with farming and I'm hearing all the things all the time about we're essential well then show it show it and I think I think we have to wrap up but this is such an important theme to like take into another day because we I've been using the phrase social infrastructure, which I think is like mm. pretty meaningless to people, but it's working for me right now. No, I like it. It makes oh, a lot of sense to me immediately. And it like, it's really all of those pieces that are meaningful. It's the pieces that farmers need and that like families need just as much and that communities need to thrive in an environment where we are not, we don't want to be subject to big business. That's not, that's not our strengths here. And so what is the infrastructure we need to capitalize on our strengths? And I think when you're dealing with the binary of Republican and Democrat, you automatically run into people being like, well, that's socialist. Well, no, it isn't. It's community. It's Mm -hmm. people. It's investing in your people, 
and what they need to make this state be what I genuinely from the bottom of my heart believe that it can be, but currently isn't. And on that note, we are just, we are over time and we need to go, but Abby, I hope you'll come back on the show. Cause I think we touched on some really deep issues and systemic issues in the state. And to that, that's what I want to toast to today is finding systemic solutions to systemic problems in Vermont and to all the people who are working on that. Cheers. 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 If you want to learn more about um, Abby and her family and the farm, you can find them, oddly enough, on Instagram <laughs> and at The Course Farm. And Course is C-O-R-S-E. Correct. Emily, if people want to find you, where can they reach out to? You can find me on emilykornheiser.org. And on my website is a link to my Facebook, my Twitter, my Instagram. You can email me there. You can find my phone number. Um, and then every Saturday at 10 a.m., I host a community conversation via Zoom. You can join us from the comfort of your home or wherever else you are. And I hope you can join me there. And this has been the, the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7, your community radio station. You can find us at 2 p.m. on the radio, also online at on YouTube, on the Vermontitude Facebook page, and the Vermontitude Soundcloud page. Have a great weekend.